October 12th, welcome to another edition of the 801. We begin this morning with a profile of a man that's been called the guest. And according to uh, CNN News, he is the mastermind who pulled off the Hamas, Hamas uh, attack in Israel uh, a few days ago. And uh, Hamas says that he prepared uh, for the attack for two years. Uh, here's the piece. A brazen political move. Hamas demands that the U.S. negotiate the release of American hostages on Russian TV. There are also prisoners in the U.S. We want them, of course. There are Hamas members sentenced to life in the U.S. We demand that the U.S. frees our sons from their prisons. The U.S. conducts prisoner swaps. Only recently it did one with Iran. Why wouldn't it conduct one with us? Confirmation of part of the intent behind the Hamas assaults in Israel. They were enabled by a failure of Israeli intelligence, but plotted by a shadowy Hamas officer they call Al-Dif, the guest. Only two photographs exist of Mohammed Diab Ibrahim al-Masri, who's nearly 60. He's known as Al-Dif because he billets as a guest in a different location every night. He's the mastermind or monster behind the murder of more than a thousand in Israel and the kidnapping of about 150 hostages. Uh, from the beginning of his life, he was very much uh, uh, interested in fighting the Israeli occupation. In the mid-1990s, he was believed to be behind a wave of atrocities in Israel. And in 2014, he's believed to have lost an arm and a leg in an Israeli airstrike aimed at him that killed his wife and daughter. For the last two years, though, Hamas has pretended to focus on welfare, not warfare. All the while, under the table, Hamas was preparing this big attack. Israel, meanwhile, invested in automation and sensors, a high-technology iron wall around Gaza, and focused forces on the West Bank. Under Deif, Hamas encouraged Israeli complacency. Then last weekend, it hit hard attacking communication towers and automated machine guns with drones, overrunning command and control centers, killing senior officers, among them three colonels, and unleashing terror on thousands of civilians. The Israel Defense Forces found Hamas anti-tank mines and other heavy weapons, a sign they may have planned for a longer stay. The shock infantry attack is either deliberately brutal from the start or degenerated into a massacre as Israeli defenses collapsed. It shifted attention and power to Hamas. He has become uh, uh, like a god uh, uh, to, some, to some of the Palestinians because of what he has done. Many Palestinians are dismayed by the massacre and the bloodshed that's followed. But with the lives of hostages in his hands, the guest now has an unwelcome place in America's mind. Sam Kiley, CNN. Now here's Kyle Kolinsky from the uh, Secular Talks uh, broadcast with an update on what he calls the Nightmare War. 
All right, guys, so I need to give you an update on the war in Israel and Gaza. Of course, we discussed how there was a Hamas terror attack in Israel recently, a few days ago, and they targeted a large number of civilians. The, the death rate was very high. What a lot of people don't know is the reason they were able to, to get away with this is because Netanyahu and the IDF decided to use the IDF to defend illegal settlements and illegal settlers in the West Bank. So they were previously on the border with Gaza, and they were redirected to the West Bank to defend the settlers, and that left uh, basically an opening where Hamas, and you saw the video, I'm sure, of Hamas breaking down part of their, you know, high-level wall and getting in and just going on a rampage, and they hang-glided to attack a music festival and all these horrific things. Um, one, of the, one of the reasons they were able to get away with this and be successful is because you had the IDF was redirected to the West Bank to protect the illegal settlers. Okay. So now look at where we're at. This is devastating. So this is casualties as of the recording of this. By the time this gets up, I'm sure the casualties will uh, rise significantly and will continue to rise. So right now we have 1,200 people killed in Israel, 3,418 injured. In Gaza, there's 900 killed, 4,500 injured. In the West Bank, we have 21 killed, 130 injured. And in Lebanon, we have five killed. And so, and so Hezbollah is getting involved to one extent or another. So in total, that is 2,126 killed and 8,048 injured. So I agree with this comment right underneath here. Everyone is losing. This is already ugly and it's getting uglier and uglier and uglier as time goes by. All right, we also have this. There's more than 100 hostages that are held in Gaza, and Hamas is threatening to execute the hostages every time Israel carries out an airstrike on homes in Gaza without giving a warning. So oftentimes what Israel will do is they'll drop some sort of like pamphlet or they'll make a call in Gaza to a place that's about to get bombed. And they tell them, get the hell out of there. If you're a civilian, this place is going to get bombed. Um, now, you know, the part that's... Uh, extra disturbing is there truly is nowhere to go in Gaza. It's an open-air prison. They're basically stuck in there. And um, is there anywhere that's really safe? Well, we know the answer. Empirically, the answer is no. I'll get to more on that in a second because they there's a certain place they're going, a UN shelter, and even that's not safe. Okay. Um, but now Hamas is saying, well, we have all these hostages. We'll execute them one by one for every airstrike that, uh, you know, hits civilians, every, like, unannounced airstrike. Oh boy, this is, whoo, this is bad. This is all very, very bad. Then we have this. Um, so the bombing, of course, is underway. And Israel is hitting all sorts of targets that, uh, you know, every time they do these bombing campaigns in Gaza, they hit these targets. And it's devastating because these are not the correct targets. An Israeli airstrike kills 19 members of the same family in a southern Gaza refugee camp. Israeli airstrikes hit marketplace and mosques in Gaza, killing dozens. Uh, the strikes also hit two hospitals, schools, and infrastructure, the UN said. And so I, I believe one of the mosques that was hit was like the third oldest mosque in the world. And it was effectively bombed to smithereens. So you have all these targets uh, that are getting destroyed. So we have this too. Um... Uh, 
Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu says Israel has only started their mission to destroy Hamas as the Gaza Strip continues to get obliterated by airstrikes. Quote, what we will do to our enemies in the coming days will reverberate with them for generations. Airstrikes from Israel have destroyed nearly 800 housing units and have severely damaged over 5,000 5, more. All right, so let me pause here to say the, the counter-argument from Israel is oftentimes like, well, the reason why we hit this school or this hospital or whatever it may be is because Hamas actually stores their weapons there. And it's like a Hamas command center, and that's why we're doing it. But then you also see these numbers and you go, were all of the 800 housing units that you bombed, were they all Hamas command centers? The 5,000, um, you know, the 5,000 housing units that you severely damaged, were they all housing Hamas? It just seems like a, a very convenient get-out-of-jail-free card for Israel to, in return to getting their own civilians killed, kill civilians on the other side and still claim, hey, we have the moral high ground. Children in Gaza have been caught in the crossfire as nearly 50% of the total population in Gaza is children under 15. I thought it was 18. According to the UN, nearly 200,000 of the 2.3 million Gaza residents have left their homes. Now, again, they don't really have anywhere to go. They don't. Uh... Again, more on that in a second. So here we have, by the way, this video, which I'm about to show you, you know who tweeted this out? Netanyahu originally tweeted this video out to show what was what they were doing in response to the Hamas attack. Look at the damage. So this is the damage in Gaza. Absolutely horrific damage. Look at that. So I think that the death rate in Gaza is going to absolutely skyrocket. Um, we're almost already at... Uh, 2014 Operation Protective Edge casualties on the Palestinian side. And like I said, I think it's going to get higher and higher and higher. Uh, then we also have this. Israeli airstrikes hit the only land exit from Gaza into Egypt. There's also um, video of this as well. So Egypt controls one of the borders in Gaza. Israel controls the rest. And, you know, when they say, hey, get out, we're about to level this place. I guess the only place uh, Palestinians feel like maybe we have a chance is to go through the Egyptian border, but Israel bombed that exit, further trapping people in there. <sighs> All right, more. No refuge. Over 180,000 Palestinians in the Gaza Strip are packed into UN shelters as Israel pounds the territory of 2.3 million people. Residents say there is no escape from the bombings. The UN says a shelter was hit directly and five others damaged. See, this is what we mean when we say Netanyahu was saying, hey, you got to get out of there if you're a civilian and there's nowhere to go. They go to these UN shelters and some of the UN shelters get hit. <sighs> All right, more. Gaza's only power station has stopped working after the fuel needed for generating electricity ran out. The power plant shut down comes days after Israel ordered a complete siege of the Palestinian enclave. So we're already at the point where they have no power. And I'll give you that quote again. We've talked about this a number of times. Israeli defense minister orders siege on Gaza, quote, there will be no electricity, no food, no fuel. We are fighting human animals and we will act accordingly. So look, man, after the Hamas terror attack, where these innocent civilians were targeted, every reasonable person is going to condemn that. And they're going to support justice. What is justice? Finding the perpetrators who did the crimes, who did the terrorism, and bringing them to justice, right? That's the correct answer. 
Instead, what we're getting is, in response to collective punishment from Hamas against all Israelis, Israel is saying we're going to do collective punishment of all Palestinians, particularly Palestinians in Gaza. It is ugly. Like I said, it's ugly. It's only going to get worse. And Israel is, of course, being cheered on by U.S. politicians, by Joe Biden, by uh, European countries. And look, man, I, I guess the thing that drives me the craziest is the sectarian thinking, the generalized thinking, the sloppy thinking, um, the tribal thinking. Because, like, you can't look at a situation where Israel responds to civilians getting slaughtered by them slaughtering civilians and act like, well, they had it coming. No, they didn't. Not all Palestinians are guilty of the crimes of Hamas, and they're being treated like they are. And so it's, uh, it ain't right, man. This is not right, and it's only going to get worse like I keep telling you. I'm Kent Garrett. You're on board the 801, and President Joe Biden declared, quote, rock-solid support for Israel and its uh, right of self-defense. American military ships and aircraft, uh, carry aircraft have been uh, sent to Israel, and U.S. positions in the regions are also being bolstered. But Hamas has its own allies, and the regional shockwaves of the attack are still uh, transmitting. In Lebanon, and Hezbollah has fired uh, rockets across the border into Israel, while Iran has denied allegations of its uh, involvement in the Hamas attack. So the question really is, is how likely is the escalating violence uh, how, how likely is it to set off a regional tinderbox? Here's some commentary from the Al Jazeera uh, broadcast titled uh, The Take. The shockwaves of the attack on Israel are emanating across the world. And in Washington, D.C., Al Jazeera correspondent John Hendren says it's very visible. I've rarely seen such unity of purpose in the U.S. government. I think the only time it's ever been stronger was after 9-11. At the White House, overnight, it's been bathed in blue and white light. Those are the colors of the Israeli flag, and that gives you an idea of just how strong U.S. support is. And that's across the U.S. government. While the blue and white and the political unity might be new, in other ways, it's business as usual in the U.S. Capitol. We must be crystal clear. We stand with Israel. We stand with Israel. Unwavering support for Israel and whatever moves it may make next, including a ground invasion of Gaza that looks more and more likely. This is an act of sheer evil. This was U.S. President Joe Biden on Tuesday. Israel has the right to respond, indeed, has a duty to respond to these vicious attacks. I just got off the phone with a third call with Prime Minister Netanyahu. And I told him, the United States experience and Israel are experiencing, our response will be swift, decisive, and overwhelming. So, with the U.S. at Israel's back and escalating violence creating a tinderbox, what's next? I'm Malika Bilal, and this is The Take. My name is Rami Khouri, otherwise known as Rami Khouri. 
I'm a Palestinian American. I was born in New York, but my family is from Nazareth in Palestine, now Israel. And uh, we've been there for about almost 300 years. I am a what they call a distinguished public policy fellow at the American University of Beirut. And I'm writing a book now on my half century of covering and analyzing the Middle East. And one of the lessons we learned so we don't repeat them. Making you um, the perfect person to talk to for this episode. What have these past few days been like for you? The past few days have been really painful, but also uh, kind of repetitive. You know, we've seen everything before, except for one thing. There's only one new element in what's happened in the last uh, few days, which is the scale, the technical proficiency, and the pain inflicted on Israel by the Hamas invasion of southern Israel. That's the only thing that's really new. Israel has projected its image in the world as being invincible, technologically supermen and superwomen. Nobody can um, penetrate them. They have the best intelligence. They have the best electronic fences. They've got the best of everything, and they can protect themselves. Well, all that got thrown out the window uh, last Saturday. Yeah. It's the unprecedented nature of the events of Saturday that lay the groundwork for all that is happening and has happened. So I want to start with a reported conversation between U.S. President Joe Biden and Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu. This was reported by the news site Axios that in a call on Sunday, Netanyahu told Biden, quote, we have to go in. We can't negotiate now. So he's talking about a ground invasion in Gaza and that Israel needed to restore deterrence. What have we seen publicly about the U.S.'s support for Israel so far and what its role in this conflict might be? We've seen the U.S. continue its existing policy that has been there for decades, really since the 67 war, which is to give Israel any material, military, political support it needs. And the United States justifies this by saying that Israel is its closest ally and that the Israelis, the Israeli state and the Israeli people have a right to exist. And this policy of total support for the actions of the Israeli state, total unquestioning support for Israel, is one reason why Israel is never held accountable for what it does to the Palestinians. And therefore, we have this really terrible cycle where mostly the Palestinians have suffered. But what happened this week is that the Israelis suffered huge quantifiable levels of agony, of pain, of questioning, of fear, of uncertainty about what went wrong. And we don't know what are the consequences of that in political terms and, and other terms. We know that in the short run, American support, which is coming to Israel in the form of the Ford Naval Group, armaments and boats and airplanes and technical intelligence, all kinds of electronic stuff. And they'll give Israel everything it needs to keep killing and subjugating Palestinians. We've been through that before and we'll go through it again now. The Israelis feel if they do it harder this time, if they're more brutal, if they're more inhuman, then maybe it'll bring about a different result. 
But of course, it won't. So with that in mind, I want to get your thoughts on a conversation happening online and in the media right now in which some are calling out what they see as the West's double standard when it comes to the Palestinians. The U.S. has spent most of the last two years trying to rally the whole world around an occupied people's right to resist that occupation. And of course, we are talking about Ukraine and Russia. (laughs) Biden has shown unquestioning and unwavering support for Ukraine, and he's not alone. What's your take on the West versus the rest? Well, first of all, I don't think there really is a West, but I know what you mean. There is a uh, tradition among many Western powers, including the biggest one, the U.S., uh, to act in a colonial way. Um, They're not colonial like in the 19th century, but they're colonial powers that feel that they dictate how things work around the world. Who trades with whom? Who has military bases? Who gets licenses to do this or to do that? They have the ability to shape the world politically, economically, and culturally in their own image. That's what colonialism is. The second thing is that these are politicians, and politicians lie. They lie out of their, uh, out of their teeth, through their teeth. The politicians will do anything to stay in power, and we know that. Uh, and, and we don't hold it against them necessarily because that's how politicians uh, operate. The double standard is a function of the two issues I mentioned, the colonial nature and the political leader's nature of hypocrisy and lying and doing whatever they need to do to stay in power. So they, they realized many years ago that the leaders of Israel or the Jewish communities in the Middle East and around the world, in Europe and North America, that they were much more important for those Western political leaders in various ways, strategic, electoral, economic, uh, whatever, and some biblical stuff. Therefore, they gave them priority, and they still do. The double standard has become worse in many cases, and to the point now where, say, in the U.S. uh, and in parts of Europe, especially England and Germany, there are efforts to prevent Palestinians or pro-Palestinian progressive people from even speaking out in public, silence them. So they took our land, they took our rights, and now they want to take our voices. They want to take our entire humanity and shove it underground in a, in a grave somewhere. And, and this is not going to happen because we're humans. We fight back, we push back, we try to do it peacefully. We've tried for decades and decades, but this hasn't impacted yet the policies of Western politicians, especially American and British uh, politicians. And this is really the battleground uh, that is to come. While Israel is focused on fighting a war against Hamas in Gaza, there's also another name on everyone's lips. Hezbollah in Lebanon. To the north, near the Lebanese border, explosions in the occupied Shiva farms and Kaparshuba hills may develop into a serious escalation of the Palestinian-Israeli conflict. Lebanon's armed group Hezbollah says it was behind the rocket and artillery attack. Al Jazeera correspondent Zayna Khodr explains what seems to be the strategy. Hezbollah is an ally of Hamas. Both these groups are part of the so-called axis of resistance that 
is backed by Iran. Iran's broader strategy really has been to create a, a threat, a threat to, to the Israelis, a multi-front threat, with the ultimate aim of trying to encircle Israel uh, from more than one front. Now, Hezbollah also has calculations it has been treading very carefully. Um, it doesn't want war at the end of the day because it, a war is costly. Hezbollah is trying to avoid, you know, you can see through its actions, the way the escalation has been, it's a gradual escalation. First, you know, maintaining the rules of engagement, focusing attacks on disputed territories, then uh, and the next attack, more or less telling the Israelis, this is what you can face. So this is why Hezbollah has, you know, got involved. It has made it very, very clear that it is not neutral in, in this war. So, Rami, let's talk about some of the other power players in the region. President Biden has also said that Hamas's incursion into Israel is not a message to other groups to take advantage of the situation. Let me say this as clearly as I can. This is not a moment for any party hostile to Israel to exploit these attacks to seek advantage. The world is watching. The question is, if that was a thinly veiled message to Hezbollah, which fought their own war with Israel in 2006, is that how you take those comments? Yes, it was a message to Hezbollah and also a message to Iran. And the United States political system and the media, the public sphere, is obsessed with Iran. Mm. It's, it, there's a kind of hysteria in the United States about Iran. And some of it is because of the Iranians, the Islamic Republic taking the American hostages in 1979. But a lot of it is manufactured by various groups, including uh, Israel, that want to show that Iran is a mortal threat uh, to Israel, and therefore they want the U.S. to contain Iran. So yes, Iran and Hezbollah are the uh, targets now of these efforts by many people in the United States political system to prevent the clashes between Hamas and Israel from expanding uh, further. I think it's safe to assume that the clashes between Hamas and Israel will not expand very much further. Mm. Hezbollah now has gotten so strong militarily that it has forced Israel into a situation of mutual deterrence, a truce. Mm. They're not going to fight a war because a war between Hezbollah and Israel would be so destructive to both countries because the ability of Hezbollah now is so great that it can reach any part of Israel with very sophisticated weapons. And so can the Israelis do that in Lebanon, destroy half the country or all the country if they want. You said that it's safe to say that this will not expand further into a regional conflict. What makes you say that? I don't think anybody in the region, including Hezbollah and Hamas and the Iranians and the Arab countries and Israel, I don't think anybody wants a wider regional war. First, it would not solve anything. Second, it would cause massive destruction. And third, the Israelis have a couple of hundred nuclear warheads, and they will use them. Hmm. If I was a Jewish Israeli Zionist, and I lived in a situation where I thought that my country was going to be annihilated, I would use probably nuclear weapons. So nobody wants to get to the point where 
we can start having nuclear weapons flying around the region. I don't think it's in anybody's interest to have a wider war. The Palestinians in particular are the only ones that really feel they've got to keep confronting Israel in every way they can, including militarily. Finally, let's talk about the bigger picture here, the wider region. This is not what was on the radar just a week ago when we were talking about how Israel and Saudi Arabia seem to be getting closer to normalizing relations for the first time. It would be a grand bargain and create a tectonic shift in the Middle East. Israel and Saudi Arabia have never had diplomatic relations, but both countries' leaders appear to want normalization, and the U.S. is actively negotiating its details. The U.S. has been very invested in this idea of a new Middle East, integrating Israel into the region and neutralizing Iran as a regional power. But where the Palestinians fit into that equation was always an open question. So what does this war mean for these normalization efforts and the whole U.S. vision of the Middle East? The normalization effort uh, is not a serious uh, process. It is a commercial, mercantile, business, money-making effort. And it was always done because leaderships felt that they could increase their security in their leadership positions in the UAE or in Sudan or in Morocco, because in return for normalizing ties with Israel, the U.S. was going to give them stuff, military, money, trade, whatever. So this was a mercantile deal by a small group of people. Uh, The popular opinion in the Arab world has been pretty fascinating. It clearly, emphatically and repeatedly makes it known through surveys and and opinion polls for the last 20, 30 years that the majority of Arabs will happily have normal ties with the state of Israel once Israel has normal relations with the state of Palestine. And the Palestinians have their uh, grievances resolved and they have a state. So this situation is going to be exacerbated now with way stronger sentiments across a wider number of people across the Arab and other parts of the Middle East that say we we can never have anything to do with the Israeli state until it changes its policy towards Palestinians and works towards a peaceful resolution based on equal rights. And it's fascinating that uh, this goes back to the question of why do Western political leaders, especially in the U.S., give so much support to Israel and so little to Palestine and Palestinian rights. I'm Kent Garrett. You're on the 801. And now we go to some politics. Sank Uger, who is, uh, has announced that he has launched a 2024 presidential campaign. And as you know, he's the founder of the liberal progressive uh, news outlet called the Young Turks. And he's a naturalized citizen who immigrated uh, from Turkey to the U.S., back in 1978. Uh, he's a long shot, but he's really doing it to get Biden to, uh, to uh, get out of the race. He feels, and, and many, of the, uh, many consultants feel, that Biden is going to lose this uh, race, uh, is going to lose to Trump. And uh, Hugo uh, uh, Uger um, uh, sank, sank 
says that it uh, should not have to be such. Uh, and he says that there are only four months left until the uh, voting uh, campaign starts in terms of uh, uh, primaries. And uh, he says that uh, if, if the U.S., if, if Democrats don't change their cause, course, uh, Biden just has the best has a, just a 10% chance of winning. And, uh, and that's why uh, Sank is running, and he's hoping that other Democrats will uh, get in the race. Here is uh, a report. So I do have a lot of questions. What I want you to explain is the logic behind what you're doing, right? Because it, it seems as though you think running is going to spark something in other can potential candidates. So yeah. explain what the logic is. Great question. So first of all, um, when it comes to the issue of uh, me being a naturalized citizen, which I know we're gonna get to yep. later. If it wasn't for that, there would be no obstacles to begin with. There should be a progressive in this race. There should have been one for a long time. Marianne Williamson has been in there, but unfortunately she hasn't broken through. I have nothing but respect for her courage and, and her policies, etc. But at this point, we're not at progressives versus establishment. We're at four months left and things must change. Otherwise, we're almost definitely gonna lose to Trump. What do you mean so, when you say four months left? I know, I know what you mean, but explain yeah. it to the audience. So Iowa, South Carolina primaries, caucuses, etc. started in about four months. Mm -hmm. So uh, in fact, uh, the Nevada ballot deadline is on October 16th. So it's in a couple of days that forces us to go now, right? And so uh, first of all, if Joe Biden drops out, everything is possible. Everything is possible, all the other candidates will come in, Governor Whitmer, Governor Shapiro, you name it. They will all come in and we'll have a real primary, which we should have had from day one. By the way, when we don't do primaries, Republicans get their message out in their primaries. is constantly talking about Republican X or Republican Y. Democrats have gotten none of their message out. We need a real strong primary. So my job is to be basically Paul Revere. Biden's gonna lose, Biden's gonna lose, Biden's gonna lose. We gotta go now, we have to change that dynamic. So I'm gonna, yes, pressure Biden to get out of the race. So if he leaves now, he's a hero. He did something incredibly magnanimous, he beat Trump last time. He was a good steward of the economy, so he retires a hero. But if he stays in, I'm gonna explain to people that he's the villain. And if he loses to Trump, if I'm wrong and he beats Trump, then great. Then my apologies to Joe Biden. But that's not gonna happen and we all know that's not gonna happen. So the idea is to create enough pressure on Biden. And here's how you get the pressure. One of the ways you get the pressure is everybody thinks that I have almost no chance of winning, right? Well, let's keep it real, everybody knows that, right? They're like, oh, your name is funny, you weren't born here, you're a progressive, you're an outsider, etc., etc., right? If I get to 20 or 25, panic sets in. There's no question panic sets in because there's two things that happen there. One, the other candidates go, well, Biden is enormously weak, right? Number two is Biden begins to realize the handwriting's on the wall. If this Jank Uger, who probably he probably can't pronounce, has gotten to 25, the handwriting's on the wall, he's gotta go. And by the way, Anna, the reason why this is realistic is because there are a lot of people in Washington inside the establishment that are trying to get Joe Biden to drop out. We need to help them, we need to create that pressure. Okay, let me jump in, let me jump in. 
you have publicly Bill Maher, James Carville, behind the scenes, other members of the Democratic Party urging Biden to drop out, saying that this is a massive risk that will likely get Donald Trump reelected again. Why do you think that you would be an effective voice in dissuading Biden from running again? Yeah, there's two things about that in it. So number one, um, why aren't they in the race? So I'm look, you could say, well, what do you mean? Why, why should Bill Maher go in the race? Of course, James Carville's not gonna go in the race. Yeah, but guys, just talking about it isn't getting anything done. So you need to actually have someone in the race that is actively pushing him out and saying, so like these like polite beseeching of Joe Biden isn't working. And yes, we've got to crank up the dial. And so one of the ways you do that is you have a real candidate who actually makes a real run at him. And when you have a make a real run at him, that's gonna create an enormous amount of pressure rather than just chitter chatter sitting there as time runs out in Washington DC. Now, you're getting to an important point here. And I know some people are nervous. Well, I mean, if Joe Biden only has a 10% chance of winning and Cenk, you criticize him, does that come down to 9% or 8%? What difference does it make? He's gonna lose, 10% isn't enough to win. He's massively behind. He's massively behind, okay? So instead, what the point of turning up the pressure is, is if you lose to Trump, it is going to be on the record. We warned you, I warned you, I came in the race in a crazy attempt to make a difference because we're on a collision course with fascism. And if Joe Biden says, yes, I am that selfish, yes, I don't care about you guys. I don't care if democracy's on the line. I don't care if I'm 80, I don't care if I'm 180. My legacy and my ego is more important than anything else in the world. So I will stay here and try to get two term president because two terms is better than one term. And guys, and if you're in the press or you're out there as a voter, you all know that's what he's thinking. You all know that, right? You know that it's all about his ego and it is intensely selfish. And I'm gonna say that 2000 times on every show until he gets it through his thick head. Stop being selfish. Democracy is actually on the line. Jenkforamerica.com. You, in a recent interview with the Sitch and Adam show, you had described your congressional run for California's 25th district as the worst experience of your life. In that election, you received 6.6% of the vote. It was also the worst experience of my life. What makes you think that anything would be different this time around? Given the way the media treated you, given the stunts that the Democratic Party pulled against you. In order for your plan here to work, you just said it. If you start seeing support for you, 20 to 25% of the vote that seems like you got that support, then maybe there'll be actual pressure for Biden to step down and not seek reelection. But what makes you think you're gonna get anywhere near that considering what you've already experienced with the media's treatment of you? Yeah, so I'm under no delusion that mainstream media is gonna be all of a sudden, oh, Cenk Uger, we've changed our minds. No, they're gonna be vicious. Yeah, yep. no, I know how mainstream media works and uh, and I said it today in, in another interview, they will lie, they will smear me, there's no question. That's what they do to every progressive. And if, if you're in mainstream media and you're pretending that you're not biased against progressives, that is hilarious. And then you will make that pretense in the middle of an article where you attack me. Go ahead, you know you're going to. There isn't gonna be one positive article about it, right? But 
hey, I'm also trying to get your beloved Whitmers and Newsoms, etc. into the race. Don't say Newsom. Okay, I know that you're not in favor of it, but that's a different conversation. So I don't think that the mainstream media is going to be any different. No, there's two things that are different, Anna. Mm -hmm. One is, I'm not the only one who thinks Joe Biden needs to get out of the race and we need to have a real primary. Tons of people, about 72% of Democratic voters want it. And Democratic Party, what is wrong with you? That you ignore 72% of your voters who scream, give us another candidate. So if you didn't want me in the race, well then you should have given him another candidate, okay? And if you don't, if you didn't give him that, you got me instead. So deal with it. Now, in terms of why it's different in terms of being able to break through. In the congressional run, we couldn't break through. Why not? Because they smeared me. And by the way, if I read the LA Times article and I was a voter in the 25th congressional district and I heard nothing else about me, I would have voted against me. Because the lies and the smears in there were unreal. I mean, they said I was anti-Muslim. I wouldn't vote for a guy who's anti-Muslim. They didn't tell people that I'm actually Muslim, <laughs> that my background's Muslim, right? Etc. So, but this time it's a little bit different media dynamic. Mm -hmm. So now we have a great number of online shows. We have more uh, liberal outlets, conservative outlets, independent outlets, mainstream, like you name it. We've got every kind of outlet there is in online, in radio. Uh, I've been on black radio, I'm gonna go back on to black radio. I'm gonna go back on to every kind of outlet that will have me on. And my guess is a lot of outlets will have me on. In the old days, mainstream media can freeze you out, right? And then you're done for. They smear you, oh, this guy's anti-Muslim, anti this, anti that, and then you never get your voice out. Well now, look guys, here, I'm gonna keep it real. When a sh an online show has me on, the views are gonna go up because people are interested in it. And and so if maybe the entire internet will say, no, we're not interested in views. No, we're not interested in Jake. We're not interested in another choice. Biden's got it. Biden's on cruise control here. He's definitely gonna win. My guess is a lot of shows, wherever they are on the political spectrum, are gonna go, oh, okay, there's now there's a fight, okay? And now there's a real challenge. Mm -hmm. And look, one of my advantages is I am loud. And so that is sometimes a disadvantage. But in this case, someone's gotta scream from the rooftops. Biden's gonna lose, Biden's gonna lose. We've gotta get another candidate. But the advantage I have is yes, I'm loud, I'm a warrior, and uh, and I will make this case. Not only the, the case that Biden's gotta go, but our case. So even though this is not progressive versus establishment, and I will take any candidate myself or others that is gonna beat Trump, Yes, but our policies are more popular and I'm not afraid to say it. Mm -hmm. And so you almost never hear someone forcefully making the argument. Why haven't they done paid family leave? 84%. Republicans wanted, Democrats wanted paid family leave, give moms 12 weeks off. Welcome back to TYT, we're interviewing Cenk Uger, who's just announced that he is entering the presidential race. He will try to primary President Joe Biden, who is seeking reelection who is taking a massive risk considering how poorly he's doing in the polling against Donald Trump. And this is Jenks way of trying to basically prevent what appears to be a future set in stone for both Biden and Trump. Now I wanna read some comments from our viewers, Jenk, because there are some who have questions, some who have concerns, others support you in this effort. Seth Michael Draginski says, I have so many mixed opinions on this, but if you can't get into a debate with Biden, how does this matter? I'm asking for you to genuinely explain it to me. If you don't go all the way, 
what's the plan then? I really need these answers to decide where I end up on this. Okay, super fair. So first of all, of course, the DNC should have a debates. And I understand that they're not going to because they are in the business of protecting incumbency, which is not their job. Their job is to pick the best Democrat to be the best candidate against the Republicans, but they have abdicated that responsibility. I don't think that they're gonna go, Oh, Cenk Uger's in the race. Well, then we should do a debate right away. So I, I understand that that doesn't mean you shouldn't pressure them, you should. Now let's all note that we all know, and you don't have to be a Young Turks viewer to, to know this, that Joe Biden could not withstand a debate against me. It wouldn't even be close, it would be embarrassing. Why are we picking a guy who would be embarrassed by an online talk show in a debate and we all know it and we can all acknowledge it. He has no chance of beating someone who has actual facts and makes a strong case. So he can't even make a case for himself. He's at 19 points lower than Trump on jobs when he doubled the number of jobs that Trump created. I have made a better case for Biden on jobs than he has. So. Now, in terms of what happens, well, we run super hard. I believe anything is possible. Do I believe we can win? Hell yes, I do. But if you get to Iowa, you get to South Carolina, which is in about four months from now, and I'm wrong, and we don't come close, we don't get to, we, you know, God knows what I'll start at. I have no idea what number I'll start at, right? But I assume that it'll be low. But let's say I do the circuit and I get the message out there and people get, oh my God, your policies are so popular. Why aren't we doing those? Your voice is so strong. That's exactly what we want for the Democratic Party. Okay, great. Then I get to 20, I get to 25, I get to 35, wonderful. But if it, that doesn't happen and you get, you, you lose Iowa and South Carolina decisively, you're done. It's not like you're dragging it out, right? And guys, this is another huge part of this. No one on the Democratic Party is fighting Trump. I mean, they're playing patty cakes with this guy. The, the guy used Nazi words the other day about poisoning the blood of our nation. The guy tried a coup attempt here. For God's sake, somebody fight him. I'm not waiting for Chris Christie to fight Donald Trump. I'm gonna fight Donald Trump. I'm a Democrat. and. And so our job, and I gotta, Joe, wake up. You're supposed to fight the guy. Here, I'll tell you this, guys. Let's say we go a month, right? Month is not much at all. And I rise in the polls more than Biden does. What does that tell you? I mean, Biden is right now trailing the most unpopular politician of our lifetimes, Donald Trump. And he needs to be up five. So if Joe Biden surges, and now he's up five, he's up seven. Oh, great, Michigan, my bad, my bad. Okay, then you should say, hey, you know what? If he did this for me, I'm gonna vote for him. If it looks like he's gonna win, I'm gonna vote for him. But why would you pick a guy that you know almost for sure is going to lose? So we're gonna put the voters to a decision. Can we win that decision? Yes, of course we can. Because the Democratic voters, because of mainstream media, have almost never heard a super strong Democrat that says, we are right on the issues. We should have $15 minimum wage. We should have at a minimum public option. They're incredibly popular. They're not progressive radical positions, etc. They're progressive mainstream positions. They're centrist positions. And they've never seen a Democrat actually rip the face off a Republican. So obviously rhetorical, right? These days you have to clarify that because of the Republicans. But they put like, oh my, Joe Biden, you're gonna, you're gonna see it again. He's gonna go on the campaign trail and like a schmuck, he's gonna thank his Republican friends. Stop doing ads for them. I will not be doing ads for Republicans. I will be 
attacking Donald Trump and telling you what a spoiled little child he is. And how he bankrupted every business he's ever been involved in. He's pathetically weak. I will fight for you, Seth. That's what I'll do. Jankforamerica.com. But not only that, we already bought how Biden is gonna lose.com. Biden is gonna lose.com. Uh, that's gonna be it for this edition of the 801. Uh, thank you for joining us. I will talk to you again tomorrow morning. I'm Kent Garrett, and don't forget the 801 does not leave the station, it is on the station.